Let's make a deal. Hi, this is Philip Lumel. Welcome to the No Uncertain Terms podcast for the week of December 17th, 2018. Your sanctuary from partisan politics. Last week, we discussed the negotiations going on in the Democratic Party, where junior members are demanding term limits and other concessions in order to re-elect Nancy Pelosi as the Speaker of the House. During the election, 20 Democratic House members pledged not to do so. The Democratic Party is aging, and the younger, newer members are far, far away from any influence. They are impatient, and so are we. For an update on the situation, let's chat with U.S. Tournaments Field Director Scott Tillman. Hey, Scott. Hey, Phil. Glad to be here. Uh, we actually have some resolution on this issue as of today. Oh, yeah? Yeah, they've had a vote, and uh, they've decided to come to an agreement, and uh, they struck a deal. And they're going to limit the top three leaders of the Democratic caucus, well, Democratic leadership, to three two-year terms, which is interesting because we're in favor of three two-year terms for for other stuff also. But Nancy Pelosi came out and said that she would self-limit. She would apply this to herself. And uh, actually, they're going to apply this retroactively for people. So Nancy's only got two more years before that self-limit will actually take effect. Well, this is pretty significant. So we're talking about the top three. We're talking about... Nancy Pelosi, who is the presumed House Speaker, and now she's got the votes now because of this deal. Um, the number two leader, Steny uh, Hoyer of Maryland, and then um, Jim Clyburn of South Carolina. So these folks are going to be term limited, and it's a six-year limit. But then they could serve one more if they get a supermajority vote to continue. Um, that is pretty powerful. Now, we were talking about committee chair tournaments too. That was not part of this deal, was it? No, that wasn't part of this deal. But uh, we can see what the mentality of the new incoming legislators, especially this new crop of, you know, we had what some people are wanting to call a wave election because we had quite a few turnovers. These people want to have some influence today. They don't want to wait, and they don't think that they should have to go through a long period before their ideas are the ones being presented in leadership. And that's what we're seeing this pushback about. Well, I think that would be in their best interest of the junior members if they did enact uh, committee chair tournaments as well. And although that's not part of this deal, I understand it is going to be part of the rules package that's going to be voted on in January. So any Democrats listening or truly anyone that has a Democratic representative should be calling the representative, writing the representative, emailing them and saying, hey, look, we want you to enact tournaments on the whole Congress. But right now we want you to enact tournaments on our committee chairs. Absolutely. Some of these committee chairs have been in there for decades. And we know that the American people are very excited, you know, to, to vote in some new people. Uh, they want those new ideas heard now. They don't want to wait. These committee chairs are people who ran on stuff that was fresh 20, 30, 35 years ago. This is the House of Representatives. This is supposed to be responsive to the people. It's not supposed to be go there in the House of Lords and serve your time for decades and decades and decades, and then you're going to talk about <laughs> what was popular way back in the day. No, uh, voters right. want stuff changed today. And the younger members of Congress who are going in see that. And they're looking for ways uh, to implement that going forward through what they can do just in their own caucus. It's been fun to watch uh, members of Congress who, of course, don't want to touch our tournaments amendment bill um, argue for tournaments when it's in their own best interest. You know, these junior members of the Congress aren't necessarily clamoring for tournaments on themselves. Uh, they're wanting tournaments on committee chairs so they can get to those positions of power. And what's interesting about that, it's very analogous to the situation that citizens are in and why citizens want tournaments, because citizens are sort of locked out of the process uh, because of the entrenched incumbency in the Congress. And analogously, the junior members of the Congress are sort of locked out of the power within the Congress. And for the very same reason, the junior members are sort of the uh, analogous to the citizens in the larger story of tournaments. It's fascinating to watch. 
yeah, you know, that's what these people are pushing back against when they're calling for term limits on these committee chairs, is they actually want to have a voice now, which is what they were elected to do and what the people want. One of the inspirations for the term limits convention movement is David Bidolf, a semi-retired entrepreneur from Florida who has been leading the effort to call for an Article 5 convention limited to the subject of a balanced budget. Through the Balanced Budget Amendment Task Force, and now the Let Us Vote on a Balanced Budget Amendment Foundation, Bidoff has revived the 1970s effort to launch the BBA convention and has led 16 new states to make convention calls since 2010. U.S. Tournament's Executive Director Nick Tombalides caught up with him at the recent American Legislative Exchange Council conference in November. We're here at the ALEC States and Nation Policy Summit at the Grand Hyatt in Washington, D.C. This is Nick Tumbalides, Executive Director of U.S. Term Limits. I'm here with David Bidoff, who is the co-founder of Let Us Vote for a Balanced Budget Amendment Foundation. And uh, David is right now leading the charge to obtain a balanced budget amendment. Our listeners know this podcast is primarily about term limits, but there's a lot you can understand about term limits and about the Article 5 process by talking to David, because he has lived it. For years, he has been a leader in the Article 5 movement, encouraging states to bypass uh, the swamp in Washington, D.C., and call an Article 5 convention uh, for a balanced budget amendment. He's really sort of a patriarch of the Article 5 movement in many respects. So, David, tell us exactly what you are working on and why you think this mission is so important. Basically, it's, uh, it has to do with my granddaughters. Um, they're 13 and 16. And in 10 years, I explained to them that interest on the debt will take uh, 7% of their paychecks nationally. And they thought that was unfair. As a grandfather, I think it's unfair that we're $21 trillion in debt. We plan to lose a trillion dollars a year. And this is going to substantially um, affect their future uh, in a negative way. They will not be able to live the American dream as our generation has. And we're getting services that we're not paying for. And uh, Congress is not going to change. It has not balanced the budget since 1957. So we are campaigning for a balanced budget amendment that is not drafted by Congress, but drafted by a convention of states. We think that there are sufficient applications uh, into Congress under Article 5 to actually call a convention and that they can do so by the end of this year. They call a convention of states to draft a balanced budget amendment. They should also notify the American people that ratification would be by a vote of the people as soon as uh, November 10th of 2020, where we would go to the polls and if the voters in 38 states voted to ratify a balanced budget amendment drafted by our states, uh, it could go into the Constitution and slow the growth of government spending to the point that the economy could grow faster than the federal government over a very long term. And that would be a prescription for definitely passing along the American dream for generations to come. That sounds great. Um, what was it that attracted you to the Article 5 convention as the process you needed to pursue to make this happen? I grew up on the right of citizens in the state of Florida to propose amendments for ratification by uh, the citizens. And I was the number two man uh, for one called Saver Homes that literally has saved billions of dollars at homeowners taxes. I saw that it was effective. The people approved it. I went on to propose a few more amendments. Uh, two of them got into the Constitution. One is a supermajority to raise taxes or fees or put them into the Constitution, such as a personal income tax. So Florida now takes a two-thirds vote of the people to raise a tax or fee, such as a personal income tax. Um, we also have uh, 
pressed forward on property rights and got a, a very good law because we had over 700,000 petitions signed to give people compensation if government regulations reduce the value of their property. I learned that a citizen, I'm just a grandfather, just an ordinary citizen, without any serious money, can actually affect change without the normal process of electing officials and, and, and political parties and so forth. And uh, one day I was just simply reading the Constitution at the federal level. I read Article 5. And I said, well, why don't we do this? Because it's never been done. There's never been a convention called in Congress to have the states come together and draft an amendment. And I know, after reading further, that our founders knew the day would come when the federal government would get off track. And it would only be the states coming together and acting to propose an amendment that could be ratified by the American people, that could change the course of our country's future. And so profoundly, um, we need to have some limits on the, the amount of deficits this country can run. And, and uh, that's our track. And we're here basically at ALEC, and we are right on the cusp of actually asking Congress today to pass a resolution that does three things. One, call a convention for a balanced budget amendment for next year. June in Philadelphia. Number two is I use the state uh, convention mode of ratification, which is a vote of the people, and stipulate to the American people that if, if it's proposed, you shall be in charge of deciding whether or not it goes into the Constitution. If the voters in 38 states, majority of voters in 38 states approve of it, it does go into the Constitution. And finally, no amendment unrelated to uh, balancing the budget shall be um, uh, authorized or sent back to the states for ratification. So there can be no runaway convention. And um, it's possible, if all of this comes together, that the call of the convention is made by the end of this year, that we actually could have a vote of the people to ratify a balanced budget amendment on uh, November the 10th of 2020. Yeah, I saw today that your model policy asking states to encourage Congress to call this convention was approved by the Federalism and International Relations Task Force of ALEC. wanted to congratulate you on that. Um, I know that you are someone who tracks federal spending, debt, and deficits very closely. Here at U.S. Term Limits, we have actually uh, done our own research, and we've seen research from professors of economics who have said that there may be a correlation between legislative tenure and the propensity to vote for increased spending and deficits. Uh, what do you think about that? What do you think the relationship is between uh, these careerist legislators and the tendency to essentially bankrupt our country? I think there's a very high correlation. We know of careerist people in Congress that are actively fighting against calling a convention, actively prohibiting states from actually applying for the convention. And uh, those are people that have served for a very long time in the swamp. They love it, uh, and they do not want to give up any of their power, and they're willing to take our country over the cliff. It's truly as frightening how these careerist swamp dwellers have put our country at such a great risk. Uh, thank you so much, David. Uh, one final question. I just wanted to ask you, let's suppose that in the next two years there is an Article 5 convention called for the purposes of proposing a balanced budget or maybe for congressional term limits. We don't really know how it's going to shake out. What would the implications of that be for our country long term? Because to me it would seem like a game changer. 
it would unlock a whole new world of political reform in this country if the states are able to seize that power back from the federal government and begin to become proactive in terms of fixing our national problems. So what do you think the future holds for this movement and uh, the possibilities for really affecting change at a national level? I believe that uh, you put your finger on it. It's a game changer. It would restore the balance of power as our founders envisioned. They envisioned the states over here, the federal government over here, uh, equally balancing power against each other. And the key part of that was that the states had the same power to propose an amendment as the federal government. It's never been done. That, of course, is the supreme law of our land. And if the states stand up and the people ratify an amendment to the Constitution, term limits or a balanced budget amendment, that will open up this process that the founders expected. Um, this would be a profound redistribution of power in our country from what is now like a 95% power in Washington to a more equal balance of power between the states and the federal government and the people. You know, giving the people a chance to ratify an amendment to the Constitution has been done once, and that was to repeal prohibition in 1933, and the people went and voted to repeal prohibition. We want to give grandparents and parents and, you know, and adults the chance to vote yes or no to prevent the federal government from bankrupting our country, Social Security, national security, and the American dream. You know, um, it's great that uh, so many citizens are contacting their legislators right now on this issue. And Democrats, of course, are as supportive of term limits as Republicans, essentially. I mean, most of the national polling we've seen, I think the national numbers, like 82% of Americans support term limits. Usually the uh, Republican number is slightly higher than Democrat number, but that's not always true, and it might be changing. This debate within the Democratic Party really shows a uh, new excitement around this issue within the party. Uh, just today, I was uh, looking at some new polling that was just done in Kentucky, and in this polling, 85% of Democrats in Kentucky said that they supported the idea of congressional term limits versus 82% of Republicans. Uh, only 82% of Republicans. Only 82%. But anyway, <laughs> but you can see that the that the support from within the Democratic Party is growing, and this debate, I think, is evidence of that. Yes, it absolutely is. The, the Democrats are getting a lot of traction right now because they have ideas that they're talking about. And people understand that, you know, new people are talking about new ideas. Uh, when they get to Washington, they have to slog through it, and they have to slog through it and find a way to get those passed. And, and voters get it, and for the most part, politicians get it, too. But Democrat voters get it, too. They have a lot of new ideas, a lot of things that they see need changed. You know, they're pointing out that there's a lot of things they want to happen, that they want to pass, and they know that unless they get new people in to do it, that it's not likely to happen. Right. Now, it's also instructive to look at who's opposing these changes within the Congress. The largest organized opposition to these reforms is the Congressional Black Caucus. And you think that it's tied somehow to some kind of racial issue, but it's not. It turns out that the Congressional Black Caucus is dominated by very senior members of the Congress. And uh, in fact, if you look at the membership, um, John Lewis of Georgia, who was first elected in 1987, so he's been there for, what, 31 years. Uh, Maxine Waters was elected in 1991, that's 27 years. Um, Sanford 
Bishop, 25 years. James Clyburn, of course, we just mentioned him, 25 years. Alcee Hastings, 25 years, etc., etc. So these guys are the guys that are in power or in line for these chairmanships, and they don't want to give up that power. So, again, analogous to the larger tournaments issue where the junior members who feel locked out are supportive of tournaments and the entrenched seniors who have been there forever um, who have power don't want to give it up. And holding that power of leadership is more important to them uh, than what their constituents want or new ideas even. They just want to control the funds and control other things. And we recently had some people talk to us in Iowa who said, well, we kind of like the fact that our guy's been there a long time, speaking of Senator Grassley. And, you know, what happens when? And, well, what happens when Senator Grassley isn't there anymore? Because eventually he won't be. You know, uh, we all we all have a natural term limit that, you know, we get called home. <laughs> yeah, we do. But um, yep. that means that Iowa will then be at the bottom of the bottom of the stack. Now, is it wise to have that be unpredictable and random? Or is it a better thing if, if we had established term limits where you would know that a person would get elected, they would have so many years to get in there and get aggressive and get things done? I think they would be more aggressive about getting their agenda passed quickly. And also, uh, a state wouldn't have to be at the bottom of the stack for a long time. You know, Alabama is at the top of the stack right now with Richard Shelby, but eventually when Mr. Shelby's not there, now they're going to have a junior member, and they might have to play back fiddle to somebody for a long time. That's a really good point. This is Stacy. I'd like to share an op-ed I came across, written by George B. Reed Jr., who lives in Rossville, Georgia. It appeared in the Northwest Georgia News. It reads, while viewing the Congressional Committee hearings on the recent Supreme Court justice nomination, I thought, and we're paying these bozos good Yankee money to do this? Was this supposed to be a Supreme Court nominating committee session? They could have fooled me. I'll bet that not one vote was changed by what came out of those hearings. Everybody already knew how they were going to vote. They were merely putting on a performance for the constituents back home to make them think they're actually doing the job they were elected to do. Congressional representatives spend over half their time fundraising and hobnobbing with corporate lobbyists, those two activities being often indistinguishable. What can we do to stop this nonsense? Vote them out of office? They would only be replaced by more well-intentioned patriotic individuals who would quickly become consumed by the Washington culture and fall into the same trap. It's the system that's broke, and we must fix it. Recent surveys reveal an approval rating high of just 18% for our present Congress. That's an 82% disapproval rating. In another survey, congressional approval was even lower, a shocking 10%. These low ratings have persisted for some time now, yet we keep sending these same bought and paid for characters back to Washington every two years. Our senators and representatives obviously no longer have the consent of the governed when their approval ratings approach single digits. What's really going on here and what can we do about it? Some have suggested congressional term limits, such as most other Democratic republics impose. I would favor this solution if for no other reason than the congressional incumbents themselves and the corporate lobbyists so adamantly oppose it. Seventy years ago, we imposed term limits on our presidents by constitutional amendment. Why not for our elected representatives? They are even more exposed and susceptible to partisan influences than presidents. Term limit opponents tell us we would lose the valuable experience of our incumbent representatives. I say, great! That's exactly what we have in mind. 
we would lose the kind of experience and relationships that have given us increasingly soaring deficits, banking and savings and loan scandals, unnecessary wars, and an out-of-control military-industrial congressional conspiracy. The new representatives should bring with them fresh experience from the real world. Political observer Paul Jacob suggests that some of our present legislative problems might come from too much experience in electoral maneuvering, political expediency, and deal-cutting. New legislators almost invariably become part of the exclusive, ingrown Washington culture of representatives, lobbyists, staffers, and hangers-on. Consequently, legislative decisions quickly become more influenced by relationships than merit and are twice removed from the will of the electorate. With a constant turnover, these cliques would have less time to build up and there would be less opportunity to profit from such cozy arrangements. Experience with term limits in some state and local governments has resulted in a decided increase in the number of candidates running for office each term. That has to be a positive sign. A recent survey showed that 84% of Americans favor congressional term limits. In a country where it's hard to get 51% of us to agree on anything, that figure should be convincing enough. I say, let's do it. Thank you, George B. Reed, Jr. And let's hope that our Article 5 resolution passes Georgia this legislative session starting in January. Follow us on most social media at U.S. Term Limits. Calling all Democrats. Calling all Democrats. Right now in the U.S. House, there's a debate raging within the Ascendant Democratic Party caucus about adding term limits to the top leadership and also to committee chairs. Democratic House members will vote on these ideas as part of their rules packages for the new Congress in January. They need to hear from you. Now. Whether you're a Democrat or not, if you have a Democratic representative, please go to www.termlimits.com forward slash save house term limits and send a message to him or her asking them to support term limits on committee chairs. Our online tool makes it easy. Just put in your address and your rep's info will pop up. You can send them a pre-written message that you'll find there or you can write one of your own. Another thing I'd point out is when you mentioned about the uh, not representing their constituencies, the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, who by their name, it clearly is, intends to represent the uh, African-Americans in this country, they should look at a poll about what African-Americans think about congressional term limits because African-Americans don't feel any differently than white Americans or Latino Americans or any other kind of Americans that they support congressional term limits. Our last national polling from February of this year from McLaughlin Group points out that over 70% of African-Americans want to see congressional term limits enacted. Well, the CBC is not acting in, in their interest in this regard. No, it's, they're not. And it's one thing when you are in a position of power, but it's when you're not in the position of power, the African-American caucus shouldn't have to wait till they have somebody in seniority before they have an equal voice. I mean, we want the playing field of all the different groups in Congress to be somewhat level. And if there's one person in there who has really high seniority and, of course, then institutional knowledge that allows them to, you know, use the system and game it and run circles around everybody else, then there are huge swaths of the American people who are going unrepresented just because they chose to throw out somebody who was not representative of them or somebody who finally left, and they've elected somebody that, you know, in 2018 they consider to be a good representative person for their district. That person is at the bottom of the stack unable to serve them for years and years and years until after they've been in Washington for a decade or two decades 
and had, you know, lobbyists whispering in their ears, been out to dinner with everybody, and spent the majority of their time in Washington for over a decade, which how connected are they really to their district once they've spent that much time there? Sure. And these freshmen, by the way, um, or these juniors may well be African-American themselves, of course. And so it's hardly in their best interest to squash term limits. It's only in the best interest of the long-term incumbents. So really, that's what it's about. It's about power and incumbency. It's got nothing to do with race, whatever. Yeah, it's a few it's a few individuals who are holding power and they when they finally have it, they don't want to they don't want to release it. And it's across both parties and across every caucus or group that we've seen come together in Washington. Once they get it, they don't want to let go. It's an old, old story. Um, Let's switch gears a minute. We had some interesting news occur over last weekend on December 9th, that is, in Peru. In that country, there was a vote on four items uh, that were meant to, and I think honestly meant to, reduce corruption in that country, which is rife. Um, Polling in that country shows that 94% of Peruvians believe that there is a high level of corruption in their country, and they're, to put it in uh, quite uh, American terms, they're mad as hell and they don't want to take it anymore, and they're not. Um, Over, I think it was 85% of the voters voted for three of these four items of this anti-corruption package, and one of them was term limits. There's a five-year term in the Peruvian Assembly, and um, now, after this vote, a Peruvian assembly member, when he reaches the end of his term, cannot run again. He has to sit out before he can run again. So he can't run again as an incumbent. And that's after one term. So this is pretty meaningful. And Peruvians embraced it overwhelmingly. Peru voted overwhelmingly to support an overhaul of the country's judiciary and corruption plagued political institutions. With more than 85% voting to back President Martin Vizcarra's proposals, it's a show of support for the leader who has become an unlikely people's champion. The only thing that these results show is that democracy has been strengthened. We are on the road to make big changes, and with these results, there are no winners or losers. Here it is Peru that has won. More than three quarters of Peruvians voted yes to reform how judges and prosecutors are selected, to toughen regulations on financing political parties, adding criminal penalties for those who break the rules, and limiting lawmakers' terms, banning immediate re-election. On the question of expanding the legislature to a lower and upper house system, the answer was a resounding no showing perhaps just how deeply unpopular politicians are. We want a Congress that represents us, really. People in Peru believe that this Congress did not represent their expectations. They don't believe that the judges are fair. They don't, they don't believe that the police is honorable. The people have spoken, but the hard part begins now. Activating these judicial and political reforms will be met with a pushback from the status quo. But hitherto unthinkable changes have already taken place this year, and that gives people reason to hope. Throughout the 2018 election cycle, we've been reporting on the citizen effort in Arlington, Texas, which successfully collected 11,000 signatures to put six-year tournaments on the ballot. The city council went berserk, 
and through roadblock after roadblock in the citizens' way, using public money to try to get the measure removed from the ballot, and even trying to bend the city rules to put a competing measure on the ballot. Courts shot down these extra-legal measures, so the city council then launched a costly campaign using citizens' money once again to fight the citizens' initiative at the polls. But the tournament's measure won, with 63% of the vote in November. That should be the end of the story. But we saw a news item over the weekend that the city council was suing to overturn the results of the election. <laughs> we called Zach Maxwell, the organizer of the tournament's effort, to get the whole story. Hey, Zach. Philip Lumel here. What's going on? Well, uh, they've got a uh, lawsuit now that they filed as of a couple of days ago. And the person that filed this is a uh, donor and uh, friend of our mayor. Well, of course. This, uh, this guy is trying to sue to overturn the election and invalidate those results. Right. On behalf of the council, of course, it's not like their fingerprints are on this. Right. It's indirect. Mm-hmm. There's not any one thing there that we can say, oh, that was that's connected to the council. I mean, it's one of those things where he, he's a donor. You know, he's a good old boy. He's involved with that with that group. Now, our mayor has not done anything to tell this guy to cut it out. It's like our mayor's the steward of the taxpayer dime, and here he's letting his buddy, his donor, his friend, uh, sue the city to protect him. Right. On what basis are they uh, claiming that uh, this election should be overturned? Essentially what's happening here is that the guy's trying to claim that people were misled, mm-hmm. and he's trying to say that the ambiguity of a sentence in our uh, proposition sets it up in such a way so that certain council persons have to come up for re-election next May, even though that's not the case. I am not sweating this uh, uh, too terribly much because this guy is trying to get an, uh, a judge to call an election contest. And we have state laws that govern who can call election contest. Now, here's the thing. Our state law very clearly dictates who is allowed to bring forward uh, these types of election contests. And it was very specifically reserved for candidates in elections, office holders. You had to have been a participant in an actual election for a seat to go to a judge and request an election contest. He doesn't even have standing in court to do it. Um, I feel sorry for him. I hope he's getting a refund from his lawyers. Uh, because it was quick and apparent to me that when I saw the basis for his lawsuit and you just read the law, it's it's very cut and dry. And we're going to intervene in this lawsuit, by the way. So what we're going to do is we're going to go to the judge. We're going to say, look, judge, he doesn't have standing. He does not qualify to even use this law. And so this lawsuit should be tossed out immediately. And my thinking is we'll be in and out of the court within 15 to 30 minutes. I can't see how 63 percent of the people voting for it uh, misunderstood it, especially when the, the city spent so much money trying to, quote unquote, educate the public about what a bad idea was. The fact that they spent over $300,000, not even spent, burnt, they, they lit it on fire, huh. uh, uh, trying to convince the public that these term limits were bad. They even, by the way, uh, had the final say over the actual language on the ballot. Um, it's insulting because the judge is going to look, they're going to say, well, did the petitioners follow the law in regards to getting a charter amendment election? And the short answer there is yes. We followed that law to an absolute T. Right. Because if we hadn't, that charter amendment would never even have made it to a ballot. Oh, the city course. council would have invalidated it. 
of course you have to, because if you didn't, you'd be shot down. That's the way these things go. And, and it should reveal to your listeners the dynamic of our city, the dynamic that the way our city operates right now is we have a council and, and a good old boy system that knows better than everyone else. And it is flat out insulting. I've been saying it, uh, especially now that this lawsuit's filed, the citizens of this city would be very wise to rise up this next May and throw this mayor out of office and kick with him his posse of jackboot thugs. Because that is what he brought to the table. All right. Well, I'll tell you what. You went out and collected the signatures, and they tried to stop you from doing that, but you did it. You tried to get this on the ballot. They threw roadblocks in front of you over and over again, and it got on the ballot. They tried to stop the people from voting for it and then uh, spent all this money to convince them it was a radical, dangerous idea and that you were a dangerous person. And 63% of the vote was in your favor. So I think you're going to win this one, too. This is the flimsiest attempt they're making so far, and I wish you the best of luck. We love winning, Philip, so I look forward to talking with you soon and letting you know how this goes. The negotiations continue. In the meantime, let's make sure our Democratic representatives are hearing from us leading up to the early January vote on the new rules package. So there are two bits of homework we're assigning this week, if you haven't already completed them. One go to www.termlimits.com forward slash save house term limits and send a message to your Democratic representative. And two, subscribe to this podcast. You can do so using the podcast app on your iPhone, or you can use Stitcher or Google Play on your Android device, or go directly to iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review us. We'll be back next week. Until then, enjoy the holidays and stay free. Free, free, free. revolution isn't being televised. Fortunately, you have the No Uncertain Terms podcast. Corruption.